Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, as I said in previous weeks, um, as we are going through this series on what is a healthy church, we are, these are more topical, so we'll be in several passages of scripture, kind of use one as a launching pad. This morning, we want to talk about conversion. Joel 2.32 says to us, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So this morning I want to take some time and talk about having a biblical understanding of conversion. To talk about this, let me ask you a question. Can people change? Or perhaps we can ask it differently. Do people change? And I'm not talking about their hairstyle or, or their clothing or something like that. But can or do people have a deep and lasting change? You've heard the saying, a leopard can't change its spots. Can someone really change? Can politicians and lawyers and preachers and professors and reporters and lobbyists, can any of these people really change? Today, we are told to reflect on who we are and try to adapt to who we are as opposed to fundamentally trying to change who we are. And so we are given the impression that there is nothing that we can do to change who we are. And we say things like, oh, that's just who I am or that's just my personality. And we use that as a cop-out to never change or to try to get people to accept our sinfulness or our sinful behavior. And we say, well, that's just who I am. The anxious person will always be anxious. The insecure person will always be insecure. And there's nothing that can be done about it. And we say what I like to say a lot. It is what it is. And we have this idea that to be mature, we just face up to the truth about who we are, and then we resign ourselves to it. Well, that's just who I am. So therefore, any suggestion that deep change can actually take place is met with suspicion. Furthermore, to suggest that someone change is seen as being manipulative. How dare you tell someone else that they need to change who they are? And if you call who they are or what they're doing sinful, then you're just a terrible person. We are who we are, and we should be proud of it. Here's my question. If deep and lasting change is so wrong, then why do so many people long for it? Truth be known, people are deeply dissatisfied with who they are. As a people, we struggle with contentment. We just do. If you don't believe me, how many times have you rearranged your house or a room in your house because you just don't like the way it looks? Or 
paint your hallway or you go and buy new clothes because we struggle with being content with what we have. Some people are not content with where they live, so they decide they want to live somewhere else. We change jobs because we're not content. Some people even change their spouse because they are not content. We are continually looking for satisfaction, and yet our work conditions and our marriages and our families and today even our gender and death become subject to our own choices and we find ourselves defeated and trapped and hopeless because we realize we will never find satisfaction in our feeble little attempts to control everything about our life. So is real lasting change even possible? What does the Bible say about lasting personal change? Today, we want to see that change, um, that, that it takes place in conversion. Because a biblical understanding of conversion is one characteristic of a healthy church. So today, we're going to ask five questions about conversion to help us understand what conversion really is. So first is, question number one, is change needed? That's our first question. Is change needed? Many people would answer that question with a resounding no, mainly because we want to be complacent about our human condition. So when anyone is confronted with the idea that they might need some sort of alteration in their life, they might think this, well, why change? After all, we should not impose our views onto someone else. To do so is to suggest that your way of living is better than their way of living or that your outlook on the world is better than their outlook on the world. And if we suggest that they need to change, then we must be some sort of self-righteous hypocrite. However, the Bible clearly teaches us that change is needed because we're not fine. We are, in fact, in grave danger. Last week, we looked at the depths of our moral depravity before God. Jesus said, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. John 3, 19 and 20. Paul gave a reminder to the Christians in Ephesus that before they were converted, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. He also taught that this spiritual death was shared by all of humanity. Paul quoted from the Old Testament, pronouncing a sweeping denunciation of any claim that we might make to being righteous in and of ourselves. Let me read it to you again. Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none 
is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We have these twin truths. First, we are in desperate need of God's grace. Secondly, God owes his grace to no one. That's the whole point of it being grace. It's not owed. What we are owed is justice for our sin, not grace. And now when God, by his spirit, calls us to turn from our sin, we experience this overwhelming sense of conviction and we begin to sense just how grave our sin truly is. Now, this is not to say that we're walking around in spiritual paranoia and imagine that we commit more sins than we realize, but rather God's spirit begins to convict us and brings sin to our attention. And maybe that sins seem far more serious than it did before. And we start to realize that our sins are an act of treason against God himself. And we are like the psalmist who prayed against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If we just think through the scripture and the images of the human nature that the scripture gives us, we see that we have images that we are in debt, that we are enslaved, that we are bankrupt, and yes, we are even dead. This is our condition. This is the situation for the entirety of humanity. All of humanity finds themselves in the exact same situation and it is disastrous. And if we want out of it, then change must, must occur in our life. So, so what do we need to change? Yes, we need to change. But what do we need to change? We'll get to that here in a minute. But is it even possible? So we say we have a problem. Change must occur. Is change possible? Is it? Can it really happen? Again, it's met with skepticism. We are the way we are. We just need to accept who we are. So often we think that it's unhelpful to imagine that any kind of fundamental change will occur to go even further many believe that it is a deception to say that anyone can really change we have limited resources and within this world by our own power we have no evidence that any self-transformation can occur if you try to argue that you are looking for help from beyond this world, then people think you're crazy and they look at you like you're all loony, like you're talking about UFOs or aliens or something. And so, uh, you know, is change possible? Yes, 
but it's beyond us. So is it a, is it a fantasy? Is it a figment of our imagination? Not according to the Bible. The Bible makes it clear that not only do we need to change, but that real and lasting change is possible. So every single person is made with the capacity to know, love, and serve God. The Bible teaches that we must admit that we are on a course going away from God and that we must change that course to return to God. And we are taught that according to the scripture that this can actually be done. The gospel gives us a new start. God can actually give us a new life. That is what we find in the New Testament. And that's great news. As amazing as that news is to us, what Jesus described in Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is what Paul experienced in Acts chapter 9. Throughout the New Testament, this radical reality is explained and presented to us throughout the entirety of the New Testament. According to the Bible, this is a crucial part of the good news that indeed change is possible. Yes, we need change. And yes, change is possible. But what change do we need? If we need change and it is possible, what do we need to change? So often, when it comes to change, one draws the conclusion that we need to change some sort of thing that we see as a character flaw. So they come to the conclusion that they need to serve themselves better or learn to use their resources better in order to meet their goals. It was Gandhi who said that the crying need of our time is a conversion that leads to self-purification and self-realization. There are those that believe that our problems come only from our confused inability to do what we want to do. And any change or conversion must be one that helps us to fulfill our own potential therefore anyone that changes or any changes that come must simply reinforce who we really are however it should never fundamentally alter us or convict us of wrong it's not what the bible teaches the bible is clear That what we need is not to discover ourselves, but to turn away from ourselves. Repent in the Old Testament, in its simplest form, is that. To turn. It means to turn from our sin and turn to the one true God. We must resign our claim on our life that we are the final judges of our life that we get to decide what we do and what's right and what's wrong and acknowledge that that role belongs to God alone. Our past sins need to be forgiven and our present lives need to be reoriented and our future destiny needs to be changed from the hell of God's righteous judgment being poured out on us to the heaven of God's gracious forgiveness that's found only through Christ Jesus. This is the great change that is needed for the entire world. But it's not just an adjustment to our lives or our desires. It is adjusting our lives to God in His ways, in His desires, in His will. It is acknowledging God's claims on us. It it has been said that the first step towards God is to acknowledge that we are not God. 
It is in the great change that we are saved and we understand our state apart from this change is a dire state. And so we call this change conversion. Sometimes we use that, have you been converted? Or we call this change salvation. And so we ask someone, have you been saved? Or we say to them, have you been born again? The real change that comes about, uh, about this change from worshiping self to worshiping God, from being guilty before God to being forgiven in Christ. That's the change. Well, what does this change involve? What does it involve? So if we all need change because we're all sinful, the whole of human race, and what exactly is involved in this change? Is it mental acceptance? Is it moral resolve? Is it merely relying on Christ? Let's look at these three. Is it mental acceptance? Some would say that conversion is mental acceptance. We simply need to make a decision. Walk down an aisle, fill out a card, pray a prayer, and we're done. The change that occurs happens, and, and we conceive it even though it may be a slight change. And so the change might be that you are now just a little more moral. Or you joined the church. Or you got involved in programs and activities. Or you volunteer to help the needy. It's kind of like a New Year's resolution, right? We all make those. We're going to do this. We're going to help the poor more. We're going to do this. on And, and so that's what, it, it, that's what it involves, this mental acceptance. However, the change that we need involves so much more than mental acceptance. It involves turning from our sin and turning to God. It involves repenting of our sin and following after God. Conversion involves both the change of the heart towards God, which is repentance and belief and trust in Christ and his word, which is faith. So today we often err in one of two ways. First, the first way we err is this. Some people don't think they are genuinely converted when they are. Okay, so they, they go around doubting their salvation all the time. They know that the scripture and what the scripture teaches that Christians will not be given over to sin. And so whenever they sin, they feel the accusations of the devil against them. And they tend to agree with what Satan is saying. And they think perhaps, well, maybe I'm not really a Christian because I've sinned. And if, if this is you, let me say to you today, don't be so quick to agree with the charges of the devil. And do not... Forget God's goodness to you or the good works that he has done in your heart or the work that perhaps other people have seen in your life, even your friends. When Joan of Arc was asked whether she knows she's in the grace of God, she answered this. If I am not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God keep me in it. Perhaps that's a good prayer for each of us. The truly changed, the truly converted, the true Christian's heart can say with John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I can say I am not what I once was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. But the second problem is this. And I think it's a bigger problem. 
Some people think they are converted when they really are not. I think if every pastor, if we were to ask them, they would be all familiar with this problem. Charles Spurgeon said in his book, The Soul Winner, he told of a drunken man that came up to Rowland Hill, who was a pastor one day, and he said, I am one of your converts, Mr. Hill. Mr. Hill responded, I dare say you are, but you are not one of the Lord's or you would not be drunk. Spurgeon concluded this story like this. To this practical test, we must bring all our work. Spurgeon was well acquainted with this problem, particularly among people who had gone to church long enough to pick up on the lingo of the church. They learned to talk differently. They could talk the Bible. They could talk Christianity. They could probably hold theological conversations, but their hearts had not changed. They had not lived differently. In fact, a sermon, he characterized these people in one of his sermons. They were happy to talk about conversion, but whose lives did not reflect conversion. This is what he said. They say they are saved and think it wicked to doubt it, but they have no reason to warrant their confidence. There are those who are ready to be fully assured. There are others to whom it will be the death to talk of it. There is a great difference between presumption and full assurance. Full assurance is reasonable. It is based on solid ground. Presumption takes for granted and with brazen face pronounces that to be its own, which it has no right to whatsoever. Beware, I pray thee, of presuming that you are saved. If with your heart you do trust in Jesus, then you are saved. But if you merely say, I trust in Jesus, it doesn't save you. If your heart be renewed, if you shall hate the things that you once loved, and you love the things that you once hated, if you has really repented, if there be a thorough change of mind in you, if you are born again, then you have reason to rejoice. But if there be no vital change, no inward godliness, no love to God, no prayer, no work of the Holy Spirit, then saying, I am saved is but your own assertion. And it may delude, but it will not deliver. Our prayer ought to be, oh, Thou wouldst bless me indeed with real faith, with real salvation, with the trust in Jesus that is essential of faith, not with conceit that begets credulity. God, persevere us from imaginary blessings. Listen to me carefully. We must realize that it is entirely possible and probably and, and is probable that active members of local churches are truly not converted. There are people in our churches that know the right lingo, that talk the right talk, but their inner part has never changed. They know all the right things to say. So it's far beyond mental acceptance. Well, is it moral resolve? 
Is it moral resolve? Some people believe that conversion is all about living a good life and being a moral person. Therefore, I collect and codify my moral resolutions. And it's all about taking the responsibility to craft my own morality and my own goodness and my own righteousness. And so I can say, well, well, look at me. Look how great I am. I've done this and this and this and this. Conversion means I have to start resolving my moral dilemmas and I have to clean up my act. And therefore, I, by doing these things, I make myself more acceptable to God. It means no more messing around. But I have a problem. Because I can never have enough moral resolve to make myself acceptable to Christ. Is it moral resolve? No. It is merely relying on Christ. According to the Bible, the real change of Christian conversion involves relying on Christ alone. We can't justify ourselves before God. We can't improve ourselves a little here and a little there and think that somehow these little changes in our life is going to hide our sins from God. Or make our hearts appear righteous before God. And he's not going to know it. That's a lie. In true conversion, we rest in Christ and we trust in Christ. And in his merits before God, knowing that we don't have any merits. This change is all about realizing that we could never go to church enough. We could never teach enough Sunday school classes. We could never give enough money. We could never be kind enough. We could never be beautiful enough. We could never be happy enough. We could never be contented enough with our religious lives ever to merit God's good will towards us. There is absolutely nothing that you could ever do that would cause God up in heaven who is infinitely holy to look down on you and go, oh, look how good that person is. I better save them. Can't do it. We must come to realize that because of our sin, we are desperate before God. Regardless of how prosperous you may seem to appear, you are desperate before God. Our only hope comes in understanding that God has taken on flesh in Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus lived a perfect life and he died on the cross in the place of all those who would ever turn and trust in him and that he rose in victory over our sins and he now offers to pour out the holy spirit into our hearts and into our lives beginning to have this reliance and this trust in god alone is the nature of the great change that takes place in conversion we must repent of our sins and trust in christ so now let's answer A fifth question. How does that happen? It's needed. We all need to change. It's possible. What needs to change and and what involves, but how and what it involves, but how does it happen? Do we just do nothing? We're just like walking along one day and boom, we're changed. Do we do everything? So we have to somehow do all this work to make it happen? How does it happen? So first, let's answer. Do we do nothing? Some would say that in order for anyone to ever be converted, we do nothing. If we do not save ourselves, 
then it's a simple fact that God has saved us. There is a story that when Carl Barth met Billy Graham at some evangelistic meeting in Switzerland, that Barth said to him, don't tell people that they must be saved, but that they are already saved in Christ. However, the Bible teaches that in the process of conversion, we must do something. Jesus didn't tell his followers, hey, don't worry about striving. All you have to do is realize that you're in a right relationship with God by his grace and everything's okay. He also didn't tell them to go through some sort of self-examination course to see if they could discern any signs of God's grace in their lives Instead, he told them that they must turn from their sins and turn to God. From the very beginning of his ministry, he told people that the conversion they need was to turn away from their sins and turn to God. So does that mean that conversion then is a matter of exercising our will? So, it, so we, we see that it's not that we do nothing. Something has to be done. So then do we exercise our will? Do we do everything? Do we do everything? We make a decision and we're done. If that's the case, do we even have the ability to make this decision? According to scripture, it seems clear that we should make this decision ourselves and that we should encourage everyone we know to make this decision for themselves. So should we persuade them and urge them to make this decision? Shouldn't we be doing something? If all you got to do is make a decision, then should we be doing more to get people to make this decision? To put it bluntly, shouldn't we be manipulating people into making this decision? If we can actually get people to make a decision that will change their eternity, then shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't I be standing up here saying, I'll give somebody a hundred bucks. Every person that makes this decision, I'll give you a hundred bucks. Shouldn't we be doing that? Because that's all it takes is to make a decision. If we can somehow manipulate people into forsaking their sins and embracing God and trusting him, then shouldn't we do all that we can? But we know that Christianity does not proclaim self-salvation. And the great change of conversion is not religious self-help thought, even though we try to make it that. So here's the answer. God works saving faith in us. God works saving faith in us. Every other religion that I am aware of preaches some form of self-salvation except Christianity. This is a great mystery of the Bible. It says that this change is a matter of our character. It's a matter of our heart changing. That is the change that must take place. But the Bible also makes it clear that we will not begin to make these right choices if God doesn't first change our heart. So we were created with the capacity to love and to obey God as part of being made in his image. However, since the fall, our capacities have been wasted and perverted. Our capacities uh, uh, have have been uh, eliminated. They've been twisted. So therefore, we need God to give us a new heart. The Bible tells us that is exactly what God has promised to do. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart 
of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 11:19. Only God can give us this kind of heart transplant. And he must work this change in us if we are ever to expect, uh, accept the spiritual truths of the Bible. In fact, it says so. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So I can't even understand them. 1 Corinthians 2.14. This is what Jesus makes clear when he said, No one can come to me. No one. Not some people. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Now, as Christians, we talk sometimes about being born again, right? We say that. Are you born again? We get that language directly from Jesus. It wasn't like some marketing ploy of the Southern Baptist Convention. It comes from Jesus. John chapter 3. You might remember it. Jesus is meeting with the religious leader Nicodemus. They're meeting at night. He comes to, Nicodemus comes to speak with Jesus. He had this pressing question. What? Must I do to see the kingdom of God? Now, Jesus doesn't say, keep up the good work, Nicodemus. Keep on living your moral life or your religious life. He doesn't say, keep on teaching, Nicodemus. What did he say? Essentially, he says, Nicodemus, you need a whole new life. Nicodemus, of course, asked, how can anyone get this new life that Jesus spoke of? And Jesus said that only God could give it. Therefore, Nicodemus must believe in Jesus and live by this truth. In this great exchange of John 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus teaches that we have to act, but he also teaches that we can only act if God's actions are behind our actions. Jesus reflected on the Old Testament, we can look at the book of Joel, which I read at the beginning. He was a prophet through whom the Lord prophesied great judgment. But Joel also offered words of hope when he said, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul quotes that exact same verse in Romans 10. Prior to that verse, Joel had been prophesying judgment on Israel for their unbelief. Now, why would unbelievers ever call on the Lord in any saving way. Why would that happen? The answer is found in the verse. And it shall come to pass that everyone who shall come on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Those whom the Lord calls. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. Paul, once again, it's, it's God's call that makes crucial difference. Paul says that most Jews and Gentiles consider the gospel foolishness. However, those whom God has called, Paul says, both Jews and Greeks consider the gospel to be the wisdom of God. In 1833, Baptists came together and agreed upon a confession of faith known as the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Let me read to you Article 8 of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. We believe 
that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces, wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, to turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy, at the same time heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and relying on him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. Please note what the statement says about conversion. We turn because we are deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness and of the way of salvation by Christ. And exactly how does that happen? How can we turn? Because it's wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God. Two key verses are cited in that statement. Acts eleven eighteen. This is where the apostles are gathered together. They're reflecting on the conversion of Cornelius, who is a Gentile. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And Ephesians 2.8 is also in there. It is, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. Ephesians 2 is a vital passage pertaining to conversion of anybody. According to the Bible, repentance is a gift of God. And faith is a gift of God. Given not because we've earned it, but because Christ earned it on our behalf. If someone has the gifts of repentance and faith, they must turn from their sins and turn to God in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that this great change, this conversion, normally comes through the study of the word of God. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making the wise simple. This occurs over and over again in the Bible. Conversions are the result of the preaching of the word. And the listening of the word of God. This is exactly how God has promised it would be. For as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven. And does not return there. But waters the earth making it bring forth the sprout and giving seed to the sower and the bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. Now stop and think about it. Would God make that promise right there? If he was not responsible for that promise to come about, how could he possibly make that promise? How could he make the promise that his word will go out from his mouth and will not return empty, but it will accomplish? It will accomplish everything which I purpose it to do. And it will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. How could he possibly make that promise if that promise was not dependent on him? That's why we read in Acts that as a result of the gospel being proclaimed in Antioch, all who were appointed for eternal life believed, Acts 13, 48. This is so, neither we who are converted nor the one who brought the gospel to us can take credit. If anyone ever comes to know Jesus Christ while sitting under my preaching of the word of God, I don't take credit I don't say well got another one I better put that notch on my belt 
chalk up another one. Because I know the one who converts is not the preacher. I'm certainly a tool that can be used. And I don't mean that in a bad sense. Like some of you are like, yeah, you are a tool. But the one who converts is God. But here's the thing, church. Each and every Christian is called to tell people that they must turn to God. And therefore, we must understand that God is calling you and I to talk to a lot of dead people. Because that's how the Bible describes us in our natural state. We are spiritually dead. As Ephesians 2 makes very clear. Let me ask you something. How can those who are spiritually dead ever turn to God in faith? How can it happen? They're dead. It can only happen if God gives them life. Now let me ask you this question. If someone is spiritually dead and they can only be brought to life if God gives them life, what should the natural question be? Well, how does God give them life? And we find throughout the Old and New Testament that God has chosen to give life to those who are spiritually dead through the proclamation of his word. That's how they get life. So listen, check this out. Your relatives, your co-workers, your friends, these people that you know that are walking zombies because they are dead. They are dead dead. They are spiritually dead. The only way that they will ever be given life is if the word of God gets proclaimed to them. Well, whose job is it? Well, it's the pastor's, of course. No! It's yours. Because you claim to have the words of life. Church, when we gather at a funeral, it's incredibly sad. Tears get shed. But listen, your family and your friends and the people you know are walking around dead already. Have you shed a tear? What have you done? Because this is exactly what Ezekiel 37 tells us in the vision of the valley of dry bones. God gives Ezekiel the vision. He goes and preaches to a valley of corpses. It's through the preaching of God's word that God's spirit goes out and it brings life, saving, converting faith comes only from the hearing of the message. And the message is heard only through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. The message from Christ and about Christ is the only means that God uses to bring about this great change this wonderful conversion that happens in the lives of people we see in acts 10 one of the greatest new testament examples of that god desires to bring a gentile centurion cornelius to himself 
And now, God is a sovereign God of the universe. He can bring someone to himself however he wants to. He can just say, Cornelius, and zapped him and opened his eyes. He doesn't do that. He gives him a vision. He tells him to send some of his men to another city to find Peter. At the same time, God sends a vision to Peter to convince him that it's okay to go to a Gentile and tell a Gentile about Jesus. And then he has Peter accompany the angel back to Cornelius. Doesn't that seem like a long way around to do something when you're God? Why does God do it this way? Because that's how God does it. We find instances like this over and over again in Scripture. When God brings life, He does so through His Word. He does it through the good news of Jesus Christ, through you and me telling people around us the truth about the great change that we can have in Christ Jesus. God could have simply saved Cornelius directly, but He didn't do it that way. He did it the way He always does it, through His Word, through human agents. It would seem like God went to quite some trouble in order to do this. He involves angels and visions, people traveling great distances to proclaim God's word. And as Peter would later observe, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. 1 Peter 1.23. This is how God has always done it from Noah to Abraham to Moses to the nation of Israel to Jesus calling his disciples. As Jesus explained to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. John 15.16. We can also remember Peter's words at Pentecost for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself Acts 2.39 later on in the book of Acts Paul spoke to a gathering of women in Philippi and Lydia hears the gospel but in order to find salvation she would need to respond to the gospel call she did respond but how did it happen we are told that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message Acts 16.14 Paul knew all about God taking the initiative in salvation didn't he He's on his way to persecute a bunch of Christians. The Lord makes him fall to the ground as he sees a bright light. He falls off his horse. God, in his great love, takes the initiative to receive Paul and have him be born again. We would find many more examples throughout the Bible. However, the point is clear again and again. God has shown the truth of what John wrote. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. We prove that we understand God's initiative in salvation. When you are praying for someone's salvation, And you say, God, save this person. God, pour out your power on this person. You're saying, God, if the gospel is faithfully preached, I know you will save people. If you think that your conversion is something that you do by your own initiative, instead of being something that God does in us, then we misunderstand it. It includes our actions. Yes, we make a sincere commitment. Yes, we must make a self-conscious decision. But it's more than that. 
Scripture is abundantly clear that we are not all journeying towards God, some having found him and others still seeking him. Instead, we are all in need of having our hearts replaced and our minds transformed and our spirits given life. None of this can be done on our own accord. This change that every single person needs, everybody needs it, regardless of who they are, regardless of their status, regardless of where they are. Regardless of how they appear, everyone needs this radical change that God can bring. God must convert us or we will be unconverted. Now here is my fear. We understand the Bible's teaching about conversion. The churches are full of people who have made a sincere commitment at some point in their life, but they've never experienced the radical change that the Bible calls conversion. Why do Christians live no differently morally than the rest of the world? Why do so many Christians get divorced? And why do so many Christians, are they addicted to pornography? And why do so many Christians commit adultery? And why do so many Christians steal? And why do so many Christians cheat? And why do so many Christians lie? And why do so many Christians hate towards one another? Why does all this happen? Why aren't more Christians characterized by the love of, the, of, of, of other Christians? Why aren't Christians characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, which we read about in Scripture? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness... Self-control, why aren't we characterized by that? Could it be because in our churches we have failed to preach the truth about conversion because, because we want a bigger church or we don't want to tell people they're in sin? That change is required, that a radical change is required. And so what happens in our churches? Our churches become little clubs. We resemble the Moose Lodge or the Elks Club or the Masonic Temple or whatever it might be instead of the church that is truly regenerated by the grace of God and the cause of this negative witness to a lost world has to be in part to blame on unbiblical preaching about conversion. Because we say, I'll just walk an aisle, just make a decision. And the congregations that allow pastors to preach such garbage and fail to call it out. According to the scripture, our repentance and our faith is a gift of God. Our conversion, our great change only occurs by the grace of God. And listen, church, we are surrounded right here in Washington, Illinois, by people that need this radical change. And they are walking spiritually dead people. Here's the beauty of it. God has already appointed some of them. You just got to tell them. But we, we get so scared. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. What I, what? He's already appointed them. Just go tell the gospel. We see that change is indeed needed, but not only is it needed, it's possible. That change we need to happen is a change from living guilt, incurring lives of sin, to living forgiven lives that trust in Christ alone. In order for this to happen, then repentance must occur. We must repent of our sins and trust in Christ. And this can only happen by God's grace through the preaching of God's word.
That's a great exchange that we've talked about this morning. Men and women down through the ages have experienced it. An African man named Augustine that once heard a child's voice in the next yard say, Take up, read, take up and read. Augustine, who had been living a wicked life, happened to have a copy of the New Testament beside him when he heard those words. And when he looked down, his eyes fell on these verses in Romans. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in the orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And after he read those words, Augustine arose a changed man. Martin Luther was a monk studying the Psalms. In particular, the letters of Paul to Romans and Galatians. He began to see the righteousness of God. It wasn't our own. It was a righteousness only found in Christ and a gift to all who trusted in Christ. And he said this, it was as if the gates of paradise themselves had swung wide open. Not far away from Martin Luther in Bedford, there was a young pot fixer named John Bunyan who overheard two washerwomen talking about God as if they really knew him. He couldn't get the conversation out of his head. He began to wonder if it could really be true. Can you really know God? God used the overheard conversations to bring Bunyan, who would later write Pilgrim's Progress, to faith in Christ. There was a young preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, who in the middle of a snowstorm couldn't get to his regular church. Instead, he went into an old primitive Methodist church. <coughs> where there was a deacon filling in for the preacher. And Spurgeon, in his description, said that the church was almost empty. Spurgeon was sitting in the back almost by himself. And that old deacon got up there and looked straight at Spurgeon and in broken sentences repeated just one phrase again and again. Look unto Christ. That's all you got to do. Just look unto Christ. He just kept saying it. Look unto Christ. Look unto Christ. And God used that to open Spurgeon's eyes for the truth. C.S. Lewis had this recurring idea of a redeemer God in mythology that began to suggest to him that something might be going on. For me, it was God breaking into the point that my head knowledge was not my heart knowledge. For many, it was your parents or a faithful Sunday school teacher or someone shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you and you were converted. God has used many ways to get his word out, but however he does it, he does it to the end to give us the gifts of repentance and faith. He does it so that we will turn from the wickedness of our sins and turn to him and so experience this great conversion, this great change that each and every one of us desperately need. The idea that we're unchangeable is a false one. God changes us. A.W. Tozer said, human nature as we know it is in a formative state. It is being changed into the image of the thing it loves. The only problem is that most of the things we love is not good. A right understanding of conversion will show up in our church. It should show up in our expectation of church membership. Admittance should not be immediate. We should be unwilling to view sin lightly as 
Christians, accountability, encouragement, and yes, even the occasional, occasional rebuke should be ordinary, not extraordinary. Church discipline should be practiced, which we will consider later on. A biblical view of conversion is a mark of a healthy church. Do you remember those old Polaroids? You take the picture, right? And sometimes you'd like wave it in the air to get it to develop. It took time. But right before your very eyes, you'd see the picture. It's the way it is with us. Before our very eyes, we see in ourselves the image of our God. The picture of the person or the thing we worship coming into focus as this character is replicated in our life. Some of us have heard God's call and we felt our desperate need for change for what the Bible calls conversion, and by God's grace, some of us have experienced that. And if you haven't, you need to turn from your sin and turn to God because biblical change may seem beyond you, but the good news is it's never beyond God. You only need the word of Jesus. Repent and believe the good news. Have you proclaimed that message? Do you know that message today? Have you repented? Has there been a change? Have you been converted? And if you have, are you sharing that conversion with everybody else that you're surrounded with that is spiritually dead who also needs conversion? Let's pray. Father, thank you.